I'd like to turn to Samuel and chapter 17. We're going to continue our study looking at the life of David. So we've been looking at how David kind of got going, how, uh, how Samuel chose or God chose David through Samuel. We looked at Saul, the king before David, and the, uh, that Saul was the, the king that was chosen out of the envy of the people and the danger of envious choices shaping our decision-making. And today we're going to really see kind of the, the bitter fruit of that envious choice because today we're looking at Goliath. And if we we're going to give a title to today's sermon, let's do that, shall we? It would be Know Your Enemy. So Know Your Enemy. Peter in 1 Peter 8 says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Good way to start the day. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We have an enemy as believers, uh, people who follow Jesus, and that's sometimes a bit of a shock when you become a Christian. That like last week, I was just fine. Now I've become a, a believer, and suddenly I find, wow, I have an opposition. I have an enemy, and Peter is pointing that out to those he's writing his letter to, to saying, don't be unaware that that's true. Actually, Paul makes that point as well, and he says we're not unaware of the enemy's schemes. And so we're going to look a little bit at some of the tactics the enemy uses to try and disrupt God's people and disrupt us as individuals. God often speaks promises into us from his word, sometimes prophetically, and the enemy wants to snatch those things away. And I think through my uh, kind of life as a believer, as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, I've seen that happen many times where I've been in the room where God has promised things to people, they have an encounter with Jesus. And sometimes as the years go by, um, if you remind them of that moment, they're like, oh yeah, well, did God really say that? Is that really true? I'm not sure it's, it's still relevant. And actually when God speaks, he both gives the ability to achieve the thing he's asked us to do, but he also carries us through if we will follow him. And so we're going to see something of that today in the story of Goliath. Let's pray and then we'll read the passage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's given to us to shape us, to direct us, to inform us, Lord God, to warn us, to encourage us, Lord Jesus. And I pray this morning that it would do all of those things. We ask, Holy Spirit, come upon us as we hear your word. Come and change us. Come and strengthen us, Lord. Come and uh, help these warnings of Scripture to live in us so that we won't be foolish and distracted by an enemy, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read just the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokoth in Judah. They pitched their camp at Ephraim's Damin between Sokoth and Azekiah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up the battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites the other with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. This is a formidable guy. That's almost 10 feet tall. Apparently he had three brothers 
also of enormous size. We don't read about them in this story, but you can in other parts of the Bible. So nearly 10 feet tall. The armor he was weighing, we are led to understand, weighed something like three times that of a medieval knight. So you can probably picture the armor of a medieval knight. You know, they're kind of the full armor. Well, this is like three times the weight of that. This was a huge man. He's a giant of a man, quite literally. Actually, in 2015, in the Daily Mail, there was an article where they said that they dug up Gath. They actually found it. And they were starting to ex- excavate, excavate, excavate uh, particularly the gates. And they said the gates of Gath were the biggest gates they'd found anywhere in all of Israel. And so you see this giant of a man came from a colossal place whose gates even were the largest ever found in Israel. He really was a huge man. It says in verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel. Do you ever been shouted at? Just kind of picture this, this colossal guy weighed down with armor. He's got someone else to carry his shield. You're a pretty serious guy if you've got somebody else carrying your shield for you and now he's shouting at you. Intimidation is all over him. Goliath stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Aren't you the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. The Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let, me fight and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified, as you might imagine. So the idea being that if you just get two guys to fight, it might well save some of the carnage that would ensue if these battle lines came together. So two guys could come together, a champion from each camp, and if they fight, it saves a lot of lives, a lot of damage. That's kind of the picture here. If you imagine the Israelites on one hill, the valley, and the Philistines on the other hill, and out from the ranks comes this giant, and he bellows across the valley at the Israelites. Um, the problem sometimes with stories like this is that we know them so well. A little bit like I would say the Christmas story. They, they still haven't allowed me to preach the message I'd like to preach at Christmas, which kind of unpacks the Christmas story as we often tell it and really says that that's not quite the picture that the Bible paints. And this is another one like that. We know this story so well, or we think we do, that often we get the wrong things out of it. We think it's teaching us something, it's not really teaching us, or at least only in a small part. It's a subject of dozens of films, of cartoons, books, and plays. The David and Goliath story is the story that, I heard it on the radio actually, it's an FA Cup tie. can't remember who it was between. It's a David and Goliath Cup tie. It's between some low-ranking team and some premiership team. It's David and Goliath. It's, that's the story. And the popular use of the phrase that we here in our culture so often is this. It's the triumph of the little and the weak over the powerful and the strong. And that's the story, that's the takeaway according to our culture. So we might see it maybe as, a, as the cup tie in the FA Cup, or we might see it as kind of a, an individual, maybe a single mum takes on a multinational corporation, to, takes them to court, and they win. And we say it's a David and Goliath struggle, and you know, we all cheer, and we, we drop the mic, and we walk away, and yes, David and Goliath, yeah, that's it, that's the, that's the story for today. Well, listen, if that is 
the takeaway from this story, then it's only a really small part of it. It really is just a minor part of what this story is teaching us about God, about his people, about the nature of an enemy. So we need to listen carefully to it. Maybe we need to ask the question, how do we get here? How do we get to this point in Israel's story and their history? You see, 500 years before, and we've told this story before here um, in this pulpit, they, they arrived at this promised land. Do you remember the story? They, were, they came out of Egypt and Moses led them out of slavery to Pharaoh and they traveled through the desert, a fairly short journey, and they arrived at kind of the, the, the edge of this promised land. And they looked into what God had promised them for generations before. I'll give you a land of your own. You can have a place to grow up. You can have a place to be fruitful, to multiply, to do all the things that was in God's heart. And there they stand at the gates, as it were, of Canaan, having it kind of ready to go in. And what they did those 500 years before is they sent spies in. All these people waiting at the edge of the land. Let's send spies. Let's see what the land is like. And this was their report back, back in the book of Numbers, those 500 years before. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. It eats them. Okay. All the people we saw were of great size. There were giants back then. We saw the Nephthalim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephthalim. We seemed like grasshoppers. We were just insects in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. This wasn't the first time they faced giants. It wasn't the first challenge before them of colossal size. What happened back then will teach us a little bit about the story today. You see, it was their disbelief back then in the promises of God, not the giants, that stopped them going into the land at that point. It was the fact they didn't believe. It wasn't these huge people that they saw, the fact the land devours those living in it. No, it was they didn't believe. Their trust in the good promises of God was challenged by the presenting problem and they believed what they saw. They were, they were persuaded that the presenting enemy was greater than the promises of God. And those spies, most of them came back and spread that bad report throughout the Israelite camp. They fed that disbelief into them. They used their voices and they spoke and it spread disbelief throughout the camp. James says this about that kind of thing. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set afire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil amongst the parts of the body. That's what they'd done. They'd used their voice, they used their tongues to speak and talk up the enemy's strength against and opposed to the promises of God. God said, it's yours, go take it. And the people said, oh, we can't do it. We'll never do it. The people are too big. There are giants. We can't face them. It, we'll, we'll never do it. And they believed what was spoken to them by those evil spies. That's what they'd done the first time they faced Giants. And here, fast forward 500 years to the valley with the two armies each side, and Goliath comes out shouting his challenge. And we find ourselves back in the same place again. The Philistines now, of course, they've taken back some of that land that was promised to Israel. They're standing in Judah. This was the land they'd been promised, the land they had 500 years before fought and won eventually. And here are the Philistine army. 
sensing victory, realizing the fearful nature of the Israelite army. But they're standing in land that God had said, wherever you put your foot, it belongs to you. And now the feet standing on it are enemies. It looks as if they're going to lose. The Philistines, both by their presence and their words, are challenging the promises of God. The assault against them is both in their hearts and in their minds. The feet of the enemy are standing on this promised land. And he's shouting things at us and we're, we're believing them. The battle to believe God's good promises has come back again. It's a different giant, it's a different day. But the tactic is the same. It's just the same. Those 500 years before it was, oh, we're just insects. We just, and they, they think we're insects too, we're nothing. And today, Goliath is taunting them. Aren't you the servants of Saul? Haven't you even got a man amongst you? That was the challenge. He was taunting them. Where's the, you haven't got a, I thought, you, I thought Saul was your king. Can't you even find a man to come and fight me? He's, he's eking away at their courage. There was, of course, going to be an actual fight, but the battle has begun in their hearts to doubt God's promises. They're doubting, is this really our land? How come the enemy's here? And in their minds, as they fill with those enemies' words and tauntings, we will face similar challenges of faith. God says to you as an individual, I want you to do this. I want you to go study this. I want you to pursue that course of action. I want you to give like this. And the enemy will come straight away and challenge you in heart and mind against the good promises of God. I want to tell you a story, a real life story. That's of my family that might help you. I've told you bits of this story before. I'd like to tell you the, a bit more of it today. It's really a story of my dear dad. Um, um, my mum, as you might know, passed away uh, late last year. My dad's now pushing on towards 80. This is his story. One of the things that he believed as a young man that God had said to him, one of the promises God had made to him was, I'm going to give you the gift to make money and give it away. You might think, that sounds like a good guy to know. Uh, maybe it was. But that was the gift they genuinely, hand on heart, would say, that was, that was my gift to the world. That was my gift to God's kingdom. And he did that for many years and invested in all kinds of Kingdom activities around the world, Bible translations, church plants, church buildings, you name it, they gave to it with all of their hearts. Their business, business ventures really were full of faith, and it was pretty clear that God had blessed them financially, and that financial success was for them, not for everyone, but for them was the means by which they would bless God's kingdom. Now, in the 1980s, Okay, this, I know for some of you the 1980s is ancient history, okay, and we talked about the whole Bible, New Testament, Old Testament. This is, you know, after the New Testament was written, 1980s, okay. But in the 1980s, one of the companies that Dad owned faced considerable financial difficulties to the point of near bankruptcy. And during this difficult phase, they discovered that someone in the company had gone to a spiritualist, and the spiritualist had effectively cursed the company. And the spiritualist said, you're, this company is going to fail, it's, and you're going to go bankrupt. That's what they said. And so they found this out, and so there we have now the same problem. God's good promise 
and the enemy taunting that good promise. Now, what do you do in that moment? What do you do? You're faced with the reality of a situation. It looks to all intents and purposes like it is going to fail. Bankruptcy is at the door, but God said it will be a success. So what do we do? What do you do in that moment? The battle for hearts and minds is engaged again in the 1980s. God's good promise is challenged by the voice of the enemy and the circumstances that present themselves. So what did my folks do? Well, my dad, he called on the Lord and he actually called on the elders of the church and they went and they prayed and they believed and then they did some other things too. They looked to the Lord and they acted in accordance with the good promises of God. So the bank manager, as you might imagine, calls my dad in and basically says, you need to go bankrupt. We can't support you any longer. It's over. This business venture is finished. It's done. You need to go bankrupt. And going bankrupt means you kind of cut your losses and try and get out with something or trying to get out with your shirt on your back. Usually that's what happens. So, but against the, vi- the advice of the bank and against the logic of the situation and the circumstances presenting, they didn't declare bankruptcy. And when the, when the bank manager challenged my dad at this, imagine this is Lloyd's Bank. I think it was in Hayward's Heath. Some of you will know it. They, they're sitting in the bank. They're sitting in Hayward's Heath. And he says, why are you not going bankrupt? Dad said, God's told me this business is going to be a success. And the guy said to him, the bank manager said, because you've said that, we'll carry on supporting you. Now, it's many, many years later, and the blessings that flowed after that are now being distributed around the world. Even now, long after my dad's retirement, we're still talking about how do we invest in kingdom activity around the world. Even this week, we were talking about how do we invest in social enterprise in Bolivia? How can we invest some of the blessing that God promised all those years ago that were challenged by the enemy and yet now are fulfilled in God's good time. God won the victory. He always going to. But the challenge was there. And my dad said this to me. He said, we could have gone bankrupt. We could have just done it. And no doubt God would have found a way to bless us because that's what God's like. He's gracious and kind and good. We could have done that. He said this to me. He said, but if we did, we'd never have known what might have happened. We'd never, what might God do if we just believed him? What might he do if we hung on to the promises a bit longer? What might happen? What deliverance might God bring if we just believed him? And I'm so grateful to him and to my dear mum that that's what they did at the time. Because I know that I and maybe we stand on the shoulders of men and women who went before us and said, I choose to believe. I choose to believe. We say about us as a church, isn't it? We want to help Bristol believe because belief in Jesus brings so much life into circumstances, individuals and churches alike. Maybe the question for us this morning is this, who's in your camp? Who's in the camp when the enemy threatens the good promises of God? Who's, who's, who is, where do you turn? Where do you go to? Where, who are you calling on? Where, where are you looking for for strength when the enemy promi- uh, threatens God's good promise? See, the king in the camp of Israel is Saul right now. That's, all, that's what they've got. And Saul was the result of their envious choice. Do you remember? We want a king like all the other nations to fight our battles. We want the pomp and the ceremony. We want the pageantry. We want it all. We want the rock star king. And they got him. 
And now it's his moment. Now this is the moment. We want a king to fight our battles. Here's a battle. Where's Saul? It's nowhere. Because this is a battle of courage, a battle of faith. And Saul has long abandoned his inner life in God. On, on the surface, of course, Saul's the guy they need. He's the head and shoulders man. He's a head and shoulders taller than anyone in Israel. And now there's a giant to face. He's the ideal candidate. Where is he? He's nowhere to be found. He was the king they chose when envy shaped their decision making. Envy got within there. Yeah, let's have a king like them. Be careful not to let envy shape your decision making because when Goliath comes shouting, those kings are no kings at all. Those decisions will fall flat. You need a different kind of king in the camp when the enemy shouts and challenges God's good promise. Israel is really now reaping those bitter rewards of their envy and those choices. And it says in Galatians, very sobering, that Paul writes to the Galatians, don't be deceived, God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to reap the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Our choices are, are big in terms of our lives. And as a pastor of, for many years, you know, sometimes things go badly wrong for people and there's no apparent, there's no cause. It's just a, a, a terrible moment and we want to help. We want to help anyway. But here's the truth. A lot of times people make really stupid decisions and then they reap the rewards of their stupid decisions because they allow sinfulness to shape their choices. That's what's happening here with Israel. That's exactly what's happened. Don't do it. Don't do it. Resist the enemy. Resist his taunting. Resist those choices with all of your heart. So maybe the takeaway from today should be to both recognize the enemy tactics to frighten and to challenge God's goodness, but also to look to a savior. You see, this story is not about you being like David, really. It's about God providing a David when he was needed. We won't get onto this for another week or two, but actually hidden in the camp is David. They don't even know he's there really yet. He's, he's, he's in the camp and he's delivering food to, you know, to his brothers. That's what he's doing. And he's the saviour that God has chosen. You don't need to, well, you do need to be like David, but you need David. You need a saviour. You need help. You need outside assistance. You need, of course, we know Jesus. David is a reflection, a, a kind of foreshadow of one who would be sent to rescue us from our sins. We need to look to God for the solutions to our challenges through prayer, through faith, through attendance to God's word, careful attendance to God's word. Can I say respectfully that a few kind of choice memes on Instagram is not taking careful attendance to God's word? <laughs> you need to let it live in you, shape your choices. Shape your decision-making so that when the enemy shouts, you know what to reply. Like replying with an Instagram post, isn't, it's not going to do it. But of course, to remember there is a saviour. There's a saviour in the camp. They're yet, to, they're yet to even realise it, but he's there. And so for those of us who, with all the best will in the world, still find ourselves from time to time making stupid decisions... 
we can rejoice in the fact that we even now have a saviour. With all that Israel had done, all the stupidness, all the foolishness, all of the, you know, the disregarding of Samuel's warnings of them, all, all the example that he'd set about hearing from God, all those years and years, that lifetime of demonstration, they still made that stupid choice. Wouldn't it be right for them to suffer something? But no, actually, God provides a saviour. And he did then and he does now. He does now. There's one, there's one last thing. The enemy here, Goliath, is presented to us dressed in scale armor. He's a snake. He's a snake. And the snake tempted Adam and Eve in the garden using the same tactic as being used here. God can't be trusted. He's not going to deliver what he promised. Now, you might not describe yourself as a Christian here today, but I'd like to challenge you with this. Maybe you've heard something of the promises of God, the goodness of God. Maybe people have talked to you about it. Maybe you're on an Alpha course even now. And in your mind, it's like, I don't know if I can believe this. Can, I, can it be trusted? Can it be trusted? Are you believing the lie that God can't be trusted, that he can't deliver on what he says? My appeal to you is this. It's the oldest scam in the book. It's the oldest scam in the book. God can't be trusted. Won't deliver what he's promised. Let me read you just one of the promises Jesus makes. Come to me, says in Matthew 11, all of you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, you will find rest for your souls. God's promising you that today, Christian or, or, or not this morning, he's promising you that right now. No one else in history is promising you rest for your soul. Jesus is doing it. Don't believe the lie that he can't deliver. It's the oldest scam in the book. Don't be fooled by the old snake. Trust in him. Now, stepping into belief, it's not just in the mind, it's body and soul. It's not just, well, one day maybe if I screw up my eyes really tight, I can force myself to believe. That's not really what it is. It's body and soul. You can step into it. Maybe for you, you need to get up and go and talk to someone. That, that, even that physical act of going and saying, no, I want to know about this. I want to find out about this kind of promise. I want to see if he's good. Something of that, something of an act of will, maybe even something physical you've got to do. That's part of believing. It's not just in the mind. It's not just a cerebral thing. It's body and soul. It's the whole of you together. And God is calling you now. Don't fall for that old scam. The enemy would want you to believe like he wanted them to believe as they stood at the threshold of Canaan those thousands of years ago. Ah, you can't do it. As Goliath is now shouting at them, it can't be done, you'll never do it. And even before that, the snakes say he can't be trusted. Don't fall for it. Trust him. Believe in Jesus.